Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hey, Sammy. Hey, Monica. Monica, I am very excited to talk to you today about a topic that's been on my mind since we spoke to Anne-Marie Everett a couple of episodes ago. And there was something that you had said during that episode that really got me thinking. And that was something to the effect of emotional intelligence is a skill that can be learned and not necessarily an inherent given trait. I would love to talk to you a little bit more about that because that is a skill that I have been consciously trying to develop in myself and it is so, so important to what we do. Let's talk today about emotional intelligence, what it is, and how we can develop that in our practice. Absolutely. Let's do it. I'm really excited about this one. I came across emotional intelligence by reading a Harvard Business Review by Daniel Goldman, who is one of the leading experts on emotional intelligence. He has a specific model of it that includes five different characteristics. And I think if we go through those five characteristics or factors in it and we provide examples, we share the definitions, that it would go a long way towards helping people realize what they're already doing and where they could probably improve. Because to some extent, we all have emotional intelligence already. No one is at a complete zero, but we probably need to cultivate it in order for it to keep improving and to get to a point where it's really benefiting us in our practice. One of the other groups, Salvoy and Mayer, they're two authors who in the 90s started writing about emotional intelligence. I like their model in some ways because they say it starts from the most basic to the most integrated skills. And these skills overlap with the Goleman model that we'll talk about. Before we get any further into models, let's say that emotional intelligence, one definition of it is the ability to monitor your own and others' feelings, to discriminate amongst them, and use this information to guide your thinking and action. So there's a couple things I hear there. One, identify yours and someone else's. Two, interpret a meaning for it. And then three, act or think about acting and and choose how you will respond. When we think of situations that don't go well, we're probably missing one of these. And I will say that probably the first one, identifying. If you don't know (laughs) that your patient is actually scared when they're asking you 20 different questions about their pelvic organ prolapse, then you're not going to respond to that fear. You're going to respond with, here's everything I know about prolapse. And they're still scared. And you're probably frustrated because you got interrogated by a patient. (laughs) If you can't identify that you're feeling frustrated, angry, you may not know that you need to change something about your practice. Many of our episodes have actually talked about the need to develop emotional intelligence We actually just haven't said outright, this is your emotional intelligence (laughs) at work. But there's so many times we've talked about identifying how you feel, identifying how the people in front of you feel, working to help them. So let's 
make it less of a mystery today. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So step one in both models, we talked about there being two models, is perceiving emotions and self-awareness. Okay. So in the Goldman model, they call it self-awareness. And this is the first step. You have to be aware of how you're feeling in the moment, how you are engaging with the people around you, and how the people around you are responding. So I can think of a couple times, many times, that this has not gone well in practice. I would say the first is a time when a patient was actually angry. And I didn't know they were angry. I I never thought of anger as entering the PT space. And I remember it pretty vividly because this person was throwing off these words. That's not going to work for me. I don't like Mm. this. I don't think that's going to happen. And in a different type of, like I said, energy that I was like, what is going on here? And I left the session furious. I was upset. And thankfully, at the time, there was a psychologist who was two doors down from me, and she also had a break. And so I went into her office and I was like, can I vent for a minute? And she's like, sure, what's up? And I started saying, and then the patient said this to me, and then they did that, and da 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 da. And I'm just going off. And she said, yeah, that patient has a lot of anger, and it's okay for you to be upset about that too. And I was like, what? I was just floored because she named what that person was feeling. And then she also named the anger that came up in me in response to their anger. And I don't think I expressed anger to that person in the session. I really tried to keep my shit together. It was very strained. But to have her name anger, I was blown away by it. And the moment I knew that this person was angry, it diffused the tension within me. And I was like, oh, of course, I just dealt with an angry person for 45 minutes. Like, no wonder Mm. that felt so hard to me rather than calling them like a tough to treat patient. And I think this is where awareness is one step, but being granular and naming it is another step. Like, it's not enough to say that was hard. Hard is not a feeling, guys. Good is not a feeling. Bad is not a feeling. These are adjectives. (laughs) Let's just clear that up once and for all. Okay is not a feeling. Fine is not a feeling. But I have read a couple interesting articles that say it's okay to start with okay, good and bad, because society has conditioned us to not be okay with feelings, that there's something wrong about them, especially when they're in the workplace where they're anywhere outside of a personal relationship. When you start with good, bad, upset, okay, I feel crappy. All of those words, which again are adjectives, they are not emotions. You can start there, but then you want to go deeper into it. How are you upset? Are you sad? Are you mad? And you can use different things to help you because this was really hard for me. I don't think I had a lot of emotional intelligence for a very long time because I couldn't really name the things that I was feeling. So even though I was feeling a lot, I wasn't naming it well. And then I couldn't interpret it and so on through the other skills. So there's two things I'd recommend. One is a feelings inventory from the Center of Nonviolent Communication. And the other is a feeling wheel. And in my morning journal, I have a feeling wheel in my template that I put in there. 
so that every morning I have to look at the feeling wheel and be like, how do I feel today? And I like the feeling wheel because it starts with your core emotions. And then as the wheel gets bigger, you actually see more nuanced emotions. You see things like compassionate or nostalgia rather than just sad. So it really is a skill that you can start to practice even when you're not with patients, because when you're with another person, all of this is harder. This is where you have to practice it is with other people, but you can start to build this on your own or within other relationships that perhaps are easier to navigate because you're not trying to help someone get better. So your friendships can be a place to start doing this and start trying to identify what is the other person feeling too. And if you can be granular about it, try to be. I think that's such a helpful resource. First of all, because we are really taught that we have these categories that we can have emotions in. Sad, happy, angry. We have these very broad categories and it's fascinating for those of us who aren't exposed to this stuff on a regular basis to actually look and see what the other words are. Under sad, you could be lonely, vulnerable, in despair, guilty, depressed, or hurt. And then there's further subcategories within that. We are often not given that language in our education growing up as kids. It's just this really broad category and that's too broad. It doesn't allow us to fully understand where we're coming from. To be honest, I would encourage you to do this actually on your own and even without friends at first because I really considered myself to be so ignorant of this stuff. And I was shocked even just reading this feelings wheel. I had to sit with this for a little while on my own and read through it several times. And I think bringing another person into that mix when you are so new to the subject is just a recipe for things getting confused and mixed up. So I would encourage everyone first to sit down, journal, reflect on this yourself by yourself, and then slowly, like Monica said, add in other people to the mix, friends, family, et cetera, before bringing it into the workplace. So there's a stepwise approach there because it's really new for a lot of us. That's interesting, Sammy, because I think that actually having someone who can name your emotion when you can't is another great way to learn about this. I can think of a time when you and I were mentoring together and I was able to start naming a feeling that maybe a patient had that you hadn't named in that way and how eye-opening that was. And, and same with my story of speaking with the psychologist. So I think it's like a both and rather than an either or. You oh, do totally. need to spend time on your own. But if you can be around someone who has high emotional intelligence, if you can find that and seek that out, that person will help you so much because they'll start to show you what it can look like. And it's hard to do something that you've never seen modeled. I think this is another benefit of therapy is like your counselor, your therapist will actually do this for you. And so you can start to then identify, oh, yeah, that's what this feels like. Monica, one of the things that I, I thought was so unique about our mentoring is there were so many times that I would finish a session and, and you would pause and ask, how did that feel? And I would say, oh, I think it went well. <laughs> you would say, no, how did it feel to you? What were your feelings during that session? And we would pull mm -hmm. up the feelings inventory and I would select a word to describe how I was feeling. And honestly, I think for me, coming from an area where that was so incredibly new to me, I, I don't 
truly know if I could identify the patient's feelings before I identified my own feelings in that space. So yes, I think part of the definition of emotional intelligence is identifying feelings in yourself and in others. And I think your example of that angry patient really speaks to that. You didn't really acknowledge how angry you felt until you started ranting to that psychologist, and you didn't identify that it was an angry patient. And so I think that having that therapist that you spoke to identify, of course, you feel angry. You feel angry, Monica. And that was because this patient was throwing a bunch of anger your way. I think the two can go together, identifying in yourself and identifying in others. But for me, it really, it took a little bit of time working on myself before I could do it for other people. I, one resource I would highly recommend everyone take, this one pissed me off. Like I was, I took this quiz online and it was through UC Berkeley, the Greater Good magazine. And they have a test of your emotional intelligence where you are supposed to read expressions on people's faces and pictures. And I scored so low. <laughs> it was like embarrassing. This was when I was practicing, I was in residency and I was like, how is this possible that I got 30% right on this quiz? Like I couldn't accurately identify emotions on people's faces. And I've taken it again recently. And it's improved, I think, in part because I've been able to identify more in myself. But it's interesting. I would highly recommend it. We'll link it in the show notes. But that's another helpful one besides the feelings wheel or the feelings inventory that I would also recommend taking. Yeah, there's so many different ways to practice it. Going off of that, I'd even say like, when you watch movies or TV, can you start to try to name people's emotions? Oh, they look angry, sad, whatever. And again, start big if you need to and then get more granular with it. I also think that reading books where people share either in first person their own biography because they'll usually describe feelings as they go or reading by different authors. Recently, I've been reading a lot of fiction and some of the authors are great in describing, oh, this feeling came up and then how the feeling felt. And it's even fun to read it and be like, oh, I'm working on my emotional intelligence right now because I'm getting more input as to how a feeling feels, how a feeling shows up. And we weren't taught this. We absolutely were not. So be super compassionate with yourself as you figure some of this out, which I think takes us to the next part. And skill two in the Goleman model is self-regulation. This is the ability to handle your emotions, not get carried away, and to be able to still be calm and deliberate in your actions. So that means that your emotion hasn't swept you up to the point where you're just doing whatever that emotion says. Like how I was ranting when I was angry and not realizing that I was angry. So I have a couple of thoughts on this personally. One Emotional regulation is not the absence of feeling and being a calm Buddha, Zen practitioner at all times. That is literally not achievable. That's trying to be a spiritual perfectionist, as my coach fondly tells me I can be at times. So please, if you're listening to this, the goal is not for you to become this person who never gets rattled by emotions. You will feel emotions. You will feel joy when treating patients. You will feel gratitude when treating patients. You'll feel anger. You'll feel sadness. You'll feel the pain of whatever they're sharing with you. But it's your ability to understand that and to let that feeling flow. Feelings persist when we resist them. So let's say you're angry 
but you're like, I cannot be angry. I am a provider. First off, you do not need to become angry at your patients. So yes, that's in part true. (laughs) If you are angry, please keep your shit together and stay professional. (laughs) However, here's the key personally for me. Once you're done with that session, you have to release that anger. You have to speak it out loud. You have to journal about it. You have to move your body to release some of it. You cannot just pretend that you weren't angry because of something that happened or that you weren't scared because of something that happened or you weren't anxious before a patient session. So it's not a suppression. It's an acknowledgement and letting it flow through And it also requires you to be able to think about what would help you regulate. So you may need to have therapy and have people help you figure out how to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. It was hugely helpful for me. But also you may need to realize that when you're sad, you want to slow down. You don't actually want to rush on to the next thing. Maybe you need to step away from your desk for a few minutes and take a few deep breaths. Or again, move your body or write about something. But really connecting to it and letting it flow is really important because most of us were taught that if you have a big emotion, you should suppress it. It's not okay okay to display it publicly. So I think that emotional regulation was actually really hard. Identifying emotions can be challenging, but then being able to self-soothe without numbing, just hopping on social media or just avoiding your feeling, that is actually pretty hard. And that's the next level skill. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with this idea of letting it flow. The way I think about it in my mind with my little mantras that I repeat to myself, the only way out is through. You really have to feel the thing in order to move through it. And that is the exact opposite of pushing it down and suppressing it because it's just like somebody telling you, don't think about the pink elephant. You're going to think about it, right? If you're telling yourself, don't feel angry, don't feel angry, don't feel angry, you're just going to piss yourself off more and it's going to feel worse. So Mm -hmm. acknowledge that you feel angry. It's better to get nitty gritty with it and say, I feel angry because that patient told me that my treatment didn't work and it made me feel like a bad PT and it made me feel Mm -hmm. like they were questioning me. Or that person made me feel angry because they didn't do their exercises and I felt like they didn't value what I was telling them. You know what I mean? And a lot of that comes from your own ego. I think that anger piece of it. But if you can name that, it just takes all the air out of it. Because when you name Mm -hmm. it, you go, oh, well, that's not necessarily true. That story that I'm telling myself about why they didn't do their exercises doesn't mean I'm a bad PT or that I gave a bad treatment. It could just mean that they didn't have time or they have other things going on. And then moving through it, naming it and and acknowledging that you feel that way is so much less effort actually than pushing it down. I shouldn't say less effort. It's a lot more effort at first and then eventually it's less effort, I think. Sure. Sure. Yep. Because you're combating other patterns. I think that's the key there. Like so, so important to feel the feeling, acknowledge the feeling as valid because any other way you're battling yourself and it's so much harder in the long run. And I've heard some neuroscientists describe this is that when you're in your feelings, you're in your limbic brain. So you're in your older brain. And when you name something, you're forcing your frontal lobe back into the equation to stop, to assess, to name. 
means that you're shifting the focus forward. So now you can start to do what you describe. Think about it, figure out what's best for you, etc. Okay, so the next skill that Goleman describes is motivation. So people with emotional intelligence uh, or when we're cultivating it are driven to excel in everything they do and always find room to improve. You're striving to be a better version of yourself. And this is hopefully an intrinsic motivation, a, a desire. And we've spoken to it, I think, many times if you're identifying what's not working and you're trying to make it better, you've got motivation. It does take some motivation to consider other people. It's easy to fall into a self-motivated space if we're not operating at our highest levels and to be only looking out for our own emotions. So it does take some desire and motivation in order for us to take a step back and say, how is this other person feeling? How can I respond to their needs and interact with them in a positive way, even if it causes me some discomfort or Mm -hmm. isn't exactly what I want in that moment. And you're speaking to the next skill, which is empathy. Empathy is being able to understand a person's situation, which is different than sympathy. Sympathy is like, oh, no, that sucks. Oh, I do not want that to be me. Empathy is wow, I can see how this person feels alone, betrayed, scared, joyful, happy, whatever it is. And usually we think of empathy in the sense of someone is feeling some type of uncomfortable emotion. We're trying to support them through it. When we feel empathy, we say, oh, this is what it's like in their shoes how can I help them? When we feel sympathy, it's, oh no, that's bad. That's a key word. And how can I maybe make them feel better? That's how I think about it. It's like giving them a platitude. Or if you catch yourself saying this, you know you're showing sympathy. Well, at least trigger, (laughs) immediate sympathy trigger. You are trying to force someone to see something positive and I bet that you completely blew past the actual emotion they were feeling. That's so funny. I literally had a conversation with my husband about that this morning in preparation for this is the phrase, well, at least. So I'm cracking up that you're bringing that up now. That is a really common impulse. We are uncomfortable sitting with the emotion that they're expressing. So we want to force them through the process and make them see it differently instead of just saying, wow, that really sucks. That must be really hard for you. Can you tell me more? That's a completely different feel and it's a different intent because the at least is I'm uncomfortable with what you're telling me and I want us to move to a more positive topic. And that's not empathy. Mm -hmm. That's just, I don't want to do this anymore. And I think a lot of us do that as providers. Yeah, because so much has gone into before you can get to empathy, right? We already described all those other skills. You need to identify what it is that they're feeling accurately. You need to identify that you feel uncomfortable with it. You have to self-regulate so that you're not trying to push off their discomfort. And then you have to think of what to say or how to respond to them. So that was probably like four or five steps I just listed all to get to empathy. So again, have patience with yourself when you're working on these skills, it will probably take a little bit of time. I know it took me 
quite a bit before I was really practicing empathy with some of my clients. And it can still be hard. One thing I learned was that people can have emotional blind spots. There might be certain emotions that were particularly de-emphasized for you, maybe because of your family or some other experiences, but maybe it was anger. I really struggle with naming anger and then not freezing in the face of it or not trying to fight back. But it could be fear. It could be sadness. There is probably some type of experience that gave you a little bit of a blind spot to a certain type of emotion. And so you may have to really work to become cognizant of that. Yeah. And also maybe not even a blind spot, but at your own trigger or reactivity to it. So you're almost hyper-focused on it. I think Mm -hmm. for me, it's sadness, which is, I think we see the whole gamut of emotions in pelvic floor PT, but we do see a lot of upset, sad people who are dealing with some heavy things. And that is an emotion. People cry or if people are upset, I'm like, ah, stop it. (laughs) My initial impulse is to use the at least this or at least that or you could do this instead what about this and try to force them out of that sad place because I don't like being there with them I'm Mm -hmm. getting better at it but that's I think my particular emotional trigger yeah and a gamut of uncomfortable emotions has so much social stigma to it and I love Carla McLaren in The Language of Emotions, which is a huge book that I'm like nowhere near halfway through. She talks about how every emotion has a purpose. Literally every emotion has a purpose for us. Anger lets you know that your boundaries are violated. Fear lets you know that you need to prepare for something. So she breaks down all of these nuanced emotions into the kind of spiritual or perhaps emotional intelligence of that emotion. This emotion is trying to tell you something and we've separated emotions and brain. We think that logical thought really is the the highest caliber of thinking and is what we need to strive for. And so we push down our emotional intelligence. But it's fascinating when we look at experts Part of it is emotion. It's like a gut feeling that they have that something is right or a gut feeling that something is off. And when we look at experts in other fields, they also rely on their emotions, but they're so well integrated that they can still make a logical thought with that emotional intelligence. It's not one or the other, not emotional or logical. As we've so desperately been conditioned to believe, you need both to function healthy. I worked at Google for a while as a physical therapist, and I saw some of the most brilliant minds out there. And unfortunately, some of the most emotionally disconnected minds out there, people who were not in their bodies, feeling their bodies. When you're not in your body and you're not feeling your body, you're literally not going to be connected to your feelings. That's where your feelings show up. That's the definition. We talk about emotional intelligence being low. It was hard for them to identify stress besides when it was super severe and interrupting their sleep. And you can identify emotions when they're more subtle. And when you do that, it's actually easier to face them. Carla McLaren also says that emotions are actually very gentle things. They're often not these huge waves, but when we suppress them for a very long time, they'll turn into a tsunami rather than another wave lapping on the shoreline of your mind. The more nuanced we can get and the quicker we pay attention to an emotion, the easier it will be to diffuse. But when you first start this work, there's a good chance that you already have a lot that you haven't been paying attention Mm. to. 
So now all of a sudden you're opening up the oceans and you're looking at all these huge waves coming through and you're like, holy shit, where do I start? Like I'm (laughs) drowning all the time, right? That's a lot of inertia to overcome initially. And that's a really great analogy. I like the wave analogy there. But with a lot of these people, you've just been putting off the problem for so long. You can even think about it in terms of any other health condition, right? If you let something go on for too long, maybe that little hangnail that you ignored for a while got totally infected and now you have this raging infection. You're going to need some help to overcome that. You're going to need to go see a doctor, get some antibiotics. Similar with the emotions, if you push them away for too long, something that you could have dealt with on your own is now something that you need more support for. And we all go through things in life where we need more support. So let's normalize that too. Asking for support is not only a sign that, oh, you've messed up and you've let things go down too long. But there's times where you need more support. When you're feeling burnt out, you need support. You can't deal with that in isolation. When you've been through a loss of someone in your life, even if it's voluntary, like a breakup, you're still going to need support. There's going to be a lot that's going on there. So let's normalize asking for help at different levels. Sometimes it's going to be personal help, friends and family. Sometimes that's not going to be enough. And then it's professional help. And that's okay. You can go between the two levels or sometimes be on in therapy and then be like, you know what? I don't need it right now. And maybe pick it back up. Think of it as a tool rather than like, I think I personally believed for a while that therapy meant you were broken. I don't want to put that on people, but that was my association with therapy was that you were messed up if you needed it and you had to unpack all these big things. And I didn't realize that we're all human and we all have things that we need to discuss and we all have things that we can awaken to. So this isn't even including trauma. This is just saying we all have things we go through that get programmed automatically in us. And sometimes we need some help dissecting those. And I think of this as a parallel to sexuality. A lot of times with our patients who have sexual dysfunction, we identify or maybe help them identify, wow, they have these specific beliefs around what sex is and isn't. And sometimes just with education about their body and lubrication and positions, it's enough. And then other times it's not enough. Their beliefs are so ingrained or maybe it's complicated because they want to change their beliefs, but their partner doesn't and and they're pain is within the context of that type of sexual interaction. And so they need more help. I don't think we get mad at them when we realize, hey, you're going to need more help. We just say this would be the next best step for you. I've done what I can. Preach. So I know. I'm, I hope I this episode, <laughs> I know this episode may sound a little preachy, but I, I think emotional intelligence is like one of the best topics for improving your practice. It was such a blind spot for me, such a blind spot. Me not being able to understand my own emotions led me to be in situations where I was struggling. If I couldn't tell that I was afraid in a session and I didn't really feel like I knew what I was doing, I might still charge ahead and try a treatment or exceed past my scope and try to be helping people process their own emotions. And it's like, what are you doing? If you need to do that, you probably need help. Physical therapy is still physical therapy, even though it's mind-body therapy. But my lack of emotional intelligence at the time led me to be trying to do that with people and not just putting that hat on for a little bit, treading into this territory where I hope I didn't hurt anyone, but I'm also 
I know that I'm guilty of pushing those bounds Mm -hmm. a little bit. And I didn't even understand those signals because I wasn't able to label how I was feeling. And everything was just bad and hard and tough. And I have these really challenging patients. And I'd say that if you're in a headspace where everything feels like it's bad and hard and tough, you need a timeout and a reset and then probably to start on some of this or a snack. Or hungry. <laughs> if yes. you hate everybody, you may also just be hungry. I like that. Yeah. I think for me, the gift that emotional intelligence has given to me in my practice is tied in with that idea of being a fixer. And when people were upset, that was also my fault. If I perceived that somebody was upset about their condition or feeling frustrated or angry, it was because I did something wrong. I didn't fix them quick enough. They're here to see me and why can't I get it done and make them happier? So not only was I taking on their physical complaint, but also their emotional complaint. So I think that the gift of emotional intelligence for me has been learning to sit with my own emotions, first of all, And then also learning to just sit with theirs and be like, okay, you're angry. You can be angry. That's not my anger. That's your anger. And you're you're entitled to having that anger. You keep it. I'm not gonna take it. I'm gonna I'm gonna be here. I'm gonna do my job. I'm gonna guide you the best I can, but that's your emotion, and I'm not gonna take that from you. Whoa, Mm -hmm. game changer. It's such a different interaction. And I think that Like you said, everything we've talked about in this podcast could be falling under this umbrella of emotional intelligence, and we just haven't called it by that name. But there is so much emotional intelligence tied into everything that we've talked about. I think it's also important to recognize that you will identify people's emotions wrong at times, and that doesn't mean you're bad. The fact that you're trying is important. Because when I'm with a patient and I see the way that they're interacting and I I notice that they're very sad or they're very stressed, I practice empathy by reflecting that back to them and saying something like, it must be frustrating that you lost your exercise outlet, which is how you relieve stress. Or that sounds like it was a really challenging time in your life. And so sometimes I'm using emotional words. Sometimes I'm trying to encapsulate the experience overall. And there's plenty of times where people will correct me. I'll be like, no, not really. I'm not I'm not really actually frustrated by it. I just want to focus on how I'm going to get better. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. I will add the caveat for those of you who this is maybe a new topic for, that we discussed this at length during residency. And when I first started practicing these empathic statements of, wow, that sounds like it was really hard, or that sounds like you felt blah. It's, it is amazing how differently people respond to that instead of you saying, well, at least this, at least that, or trying to minimize their feelings. When you reflect that feeling back to them and validate it, people often cry. <laughs> I was not prepared for that. I was like, oh my God, because they're crying, I did it wrong. And now I see it differently as because they're crying, I touched on something and maybe I did it right. Now, I think that's a second step of, okay, now that they're crying, what the hell do I do? You know? <laughs> I think that's that can be a tricky place to be when this is all new to you as well. But my warning for that is, if you do this, you're opening up a little bit of vulnerability in that person. You're opening up something that they maybe have not touched on before with any provider. And don't be surprised if it gets a little bit emotional, but that's also okay. It's okay if people cry. All you need to do is sit there and hand them a tissue if you have one near you. And 
you know, you can ask them questions. Is there anything that you need right now? Is there anything that I can do for you? And then let them have it. Let them be upset for a second. Usually they move their way through it and then it's fine. It doesn't mean you did anything wrong. But that was something I will add the caveat that if you do this, things might escalate, but not necessarily in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. Crying is like an emotional bowel movement. You just got to let that shit go. So <laughs> I said that at work you, the other day and everyone was up. cracking up. <laughs> yeah. They were like, great what? Quote. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Pelvic PTs on emotional intelligence. That's what you get. So the final skill from Goldman that we haven't touched on yet is social skills. Someone who has great emotional intelligence will obviously communicate effectively with people around them, be able to work well in teams and in leadership roles. And I think it's a byproduct. I almost don't think of this one as a skill personally, because I think it's a result of doing all the other skills mm -hmm. really well. And so that's how I take it. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. You can't really have one without the other. If you know how to recognize emotions in yourself and in others, you're going to have better interactions with other people. Right. And going back to the second model, so that was all five key attributes from Goleman. We're going to go to Salovey and Mayer, 1990. They had four components from basic to most integrated. One is perceiving emotions accurately in yourself and others. Two is emotional facilitation of thought. So it's using emotions to spur thought and promote feelings that support thinking. It's your emotions and your logic working together rather than one is in charge and the other is off. And next is understanding the meaning of emotions. So great, you can now identify the face that's mad. But what does mad mean? Does mad mean they're mad at you? Can mad mean that they're feeling unjust? You know, they're feeling the injustice of a situation or they feel like they've crossed their own boundary. And then the final skill is emotional regulation of yourself and supporting others to emotionally regulate. And what Sammy has touched on here is once you start reflecting these statements back to others, you may be the person who helps them soothe by sitting there, letting them cry by acknowledging that their anger is valid. And I'm learning that when I offer an empathetic statement, people will then comment on it, but I do not need to comment on it any further. I will say, this has been hard for you to be so scared of what the pain means. And they'll be like, yeah, and da 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 And you know, what they're doing is sharing more of their experience with you. You do not need to take any of that and then make further comments on it. It's okay to be like, yeah, or thank you for sharing that. And then move on to the next thing that was really important PT-wise. And this isn't to say you have to comment on every single emotion that a person demonstrates. I think an unspoken skill here is understanding that someone is having an emotion and reading the room to decide you know what, this person's, they're giving off really angry vibes, but from their statement, they don't know that they're angry. Maybe I'm not going to bring it up. Like with that patient who was mad, maybe it would have diffused the situation, but also I was really mad. So it was probably not the time to talk about anger because I was still learning to regulate my own anger. So emotional intelligence is feeling it in yourself. It's seeing what's going on in others and identifying it correctly. 
It's learning about what emotions are trying to tell you because they're conveying a message. And then it's responding to it rather than reacting. Just like meditation teaches you, we're trying not to react to our anger, our sadness, our joy, our happiness. We're trying to respond to it in therapy, in physical therapy, that is. So I think that wraps it up, Sammy. I feel like we covered all the skills and the two models and hopefully left people with a lot of food for thought. And this probably explains a lot of the stuff that we've covered in our podcast so far. We should have let in with this one. It took us a while to realize we were practicing emotional intelligence, probably, I would say. (laughs) And I would really encourage everyone to do their own research and reading on this topic. There is so much out there. There are courses you can take on developing emotional intelligence. There are books you can read, many of which we've mentioned already. Um, I would encourage you to check those things out. We're going to link a lot of those things in the show notes. And this is a big topic. Just like logic and intelligence is a big topic, emotional intelligence is is a part of intelligence, and it encompasses a wide breadth of different things. And so it's going to take some of your own diligence to get there. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. As always, stay conscious and see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.